I'd like to take uh, for the topic tonight of being on retreat and how you can get the most out of being on retreat in terms of framing the effort that you're making here. You know, when we're on retreat, very often we tend to really prioritize sitting practice, the formal sitting practice, where we're sitting and attending to the breath, or we're sitting and doing metta practice, or uh, we're sitting with open awareness, we're noting or we're not noting. But we tend to think of that as being the real deal, that's the real deal. And on these structured retreats, you know, these periods of sitting with your eyes closed, with your body relatively still and closed, these are important places of practice. There's no doubt about it. It's kind of the experimental ground, a huge support in establishing mindfulness and training the mind to attend to its immediate experience by simplifying everything, just asking the mind to do a relatively simple task of staying in the present tense and remembering its instructions and practicing according to them. And this is how we get to know the instructions and internalize them, how to come to understand their basic principles, as well as how to work with things that are challenging that may come up in the course of trying to do this. The hindrances, the body pain, uh, the difficult memories, all the rest of it are ultimately included within the framing support of the instructions. So it's important to know the instructions, to know them well enough so that you could actually say them to yourself. So that's a a first competency. So there's a, a basic idea that, you know, first we receive and kind of ingest the instructions. Usually you're given them by a teacher, although some of you may have initially learned some things from uh, books or from tapes. And then the second step is we remember and kind of digest the meaning of the instructions. And the third step is the assimilation of them uh, into our own mind stream so that we know them well enough that they become largely self-executing, that the practice uh, is arising from from inside, the mind knows how to relate to its arising experience pretty continuously. But that's kind of the advanced uh, stage of it. And to learn this, it really takes persistence and patience and kindness and resolve and dedication and forgiveness and letting go of many, many things, including our mind's tendency to complexify all experience uh, by burdening it with a lot of assumptions and uh, things that don't really pertain to the simplicity of just being in the present and learning how to work with what's there. 
So there's faith here that um, comes to the fore, faith in ourselves and faith in the practice that this is possible for human beings to learn how to do. And indeed, being a human being, it is possible for me to do it too. That it's not outside my range. That this will yield to uh, dedicated and skillful effort. And walking meditations, too, are also given in very um, different ways. There's a number of different forms that they can take. And interestingly enough, they're often given in very uh, offhanded or sometimes even secondary kind of ways. If you can consider the amount of time on a structured retreat that's dedicated to... uh, instructions related to walking compared to sitting, you would see that, well, it's not really talked about very much. You know, it's, it's always about the sitting, the sitting, the sitting practice. Um, so these instructions are taught, but if you look at the breakdown of time in terms of the, how, how they're taught, it's mostly going in the direction of talking about the sitting practice. And when people come into their practice interviews or when on retreat there are open questions in the hall, almost all the questions are about sitting practice. Almost as if the walking practice doesn't count, but it's actually a co-equal practice. And those who are either inclined towards walking or who commit to it uh, and actually develop a walking practice, there can be tremendous rewards with it. The Buddha says that one of the ways that you can check out whether a practice place is uh, an environment where people are actually getting down to doing it is to look around and see whether the walking paths are well-worn. And if they are, it's a good sign. It means that people are actually uh, taking this particular practice seriously. And the Buddha also says that um, the mind can become very concentrated in walking practice and that the concentration that's developed in walking practice actually lasts a long time. Lasts a long time. It can be a very durable uh, way of collecting the mind. And sometimes even the mind can get more concentrated in doing the walking practice than it actually is in the sitting practice. So when the mind starts to experience this wholesome concentration and walking practice, it starts to like to do it. It starts to become willing to do it and makes a durable connection to mindfulness of the sensations of walking in whatever form you actually do it. And this is a really fortunate thing because if you consider we really don't spend most of our day sitting stationary with our eyes closed trying to feel the breath, right? For most of us, uh, we'll say the non-pros, um, this is something that might happen once or twice a day for a period of time. And that's kind of on the high end for most daily practice. For many of us, daily practice is more hit or miss But the walking, the walking is something that we do every day. 
at least until we get to the point where we can't do it. So it's a very potent crossover place from the experience of being on retreat to the experience of being able to carry sustained mindfulness into daily life. You know, I've spent a lot of time at the Forest Refuge, um, both on retreat and teaching here. And my mind is so um, oriented to the sensation of walking down that long corridor that I think it would, at this point, be really difficult for me not to actually be present with the physical sensations of walking, doing there, right? The mindfulness is actually collected around that particular set of sensations in that particular uh, place. And you yourselves travel up and down that corridor many times a day, and so this may be a place where you too can develop this association of, oh, walking, touching, sensing, feeling, right there. Thus having some establishment or reestablishment of mindfulness every time you travel outside of your room. So we've got the walking and the sitting practice as the two formal practices in the course of a day. But when you think about it, when you're on retreat, even though these may add up to a considerable number of hours a day, these formal periods, it doesn't constitute the whole day. So even if you subtract the time that you spend sleeping, there's still hours a day where you're not doing formal practice. So then a question might be for you, how do you hold or relate to those particular hours, those periods of time where you're not doing the sitting and you're not doing the walking and you're not asleep? What possibilities do those other times hold for the development and extension of your main purpose in being here? So, you know, there are a number of potential yogi responses to these places where there's gaps in the daily self-generated schedule. So, you know, one might be, it's time off, you know, it's like vacation, like, woo, you know, school's out, school's out. Or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's held as a opportunity to rebalance energy and effort, right? You take a look around, you see, well, what, what does the body-mind need now? Is there too much energy in the system? Well, if there's too much energy in the system, maybe I should go for a run and, you know, bleed some of it off. You know, is, is there not, is the body-mind actually uh, fatigued from, from over-striving? You know, has it worked itself into some kind of psycho-emotional knot? Oh, well, maybe this is a time to go uh, do legs up the wall pose or to, to take uh, a nap to get a cup of tea. Or maybe this is a window where you think, okay, this is, this is self-care time. This is time to go take a shower. You know, maybe I just need to do some, uh, some yoga now as part of basic body maintenance. Take care of the physical plant because after all, I'm asking it to do a lot. 
with these hours of walking uh, and these hours of sitting fairly immobile. You know, that's something that (laughs) I was going to say we don't usually do very much of. Um, But, you know, we do a lot of it, of course, but usually it's in front of a a keypad or a, uh, you know, television set. But it, it stresses the body, right? There's a certain kind of stress on the body. Although at certain points in the practice, the body can get really open and easeful. <laughs> or you might think, okay, this is a Dharma reading opportunity. You know, maybe something has come up for you in practice uh, and it occurs to you, I wonder if there's something in the library that might particularly address this point. I wonder what uh, Joseph's book says about doubt. Hmm, because I think that's the hindrance I'm having. Maybe I should go and see what that is. Or maybe I should read a sutta and find some inspiration to continue on. Or, you know, you might hold it as like a space out opportunity. Like this is the opportunity to just kind of like space out completely which you will soon find, if you observe closely, is actually a hindrance, invitation, opportunity, right? So here's the question, you know, is there a certain kind of way that we can use this time wisely to actually support and extend our practice into the off hours without turning everything into this unpleasant, unfruitful over-efforting? Now, when I first started to talk about this topic and I started talking about your off hours and how you might turn that into practice, I don't know, but I'm guessing that some of the minds here went, oh man, 12 hours a day is enough, right? 16 hours a day is enough. You know, what are you talking about turning the rest of it into practice? It's like, oh my God, you know, my head is going to explode and my body is so sore. But that's really um, putting too too rigid an overlay onto this whole question. Because, you know, if there's a way that we can do this, it would be really useful to us because consider the Utejaniya reflection I gave you yesterday morning where he talked about the importance of continuity in practice. So he said it was really important, but he didn't in the sections that I read, didn't go too much into why it's important, why it's really useful, this piece of continuity. So I'm going to tell you why I think it is important. So firstly, as you may have noticed, it takes a lot of commitment and a lot of effort, often, to actually rouse mindfulness, right? To get that mindfulness stream going to collect attention enough to remember to be in the present, to connect with the instructions, to stay there without being gone for too long. That takes a lot of work to do that. So it takes effort to establish mindfulness. And then the second point is mindfulness itself is a cause and condition for the arising of subsequent future moments of mindfulness, which is a way of saying it's like getting a wheel rolling downhill, 
once you get it going, there's something about it that helps feed it. It helps feed the arising of additional moments of mindfulness. So you're into a virtuous kind of cycle with it. And then consider the downside when mindfulness collapses, which is the door to conditioned states of delusion really opens and the hindrances arise, right? Mindfulness is a protection against the arising of the hindrances. So if there's a mindfulness vacuum, then that means that unwholesome states can arise more easily. And when mindfulness is absent, that, absence, that means that the, we don't necessarily even notice the presence of these hindrances in their earlier stages. And so they, it's easy for them to proliferate and get stronger. Right? They kind of sneak in often in a more mild form but if we're totally off duty, they can easily strengthen and arise and become, th- become something that's powerful and difficult to identify and meet. So then you've got strong hindrances going, which makes it difficult to reestablish mindfulness, right? Because first you have to find enough access, enough footing to be able to work with the hindrance that's there skillfully. And sometimes that can be really hard to do, right? It's hard to resource it when it's that way. So that means that you're then in a situation where you kind of have to, have to wait often until it blows itself out or starts to decrease enough so that the mindfulness that's there can actually start uh, working with it. So once you've made the effort to establish mindfulness, it's wise and it's skillful to keep that thread going no matter what you're doing. So, you know, one common pattern in practice is that people try really hard, you know, they make effort, they make effort, you know, they really, really try really hard in a a tight kind of way that's committed, but it's over-efforting, right? Over-efforting and it, it... kind of burns out the system. So you're so tired at the end of, you know, trying to practice in a certain kind of way that the body-mind is is burned out. So this is like a kind of stop-and-go pattern in practice that is actually the hardest way to practice. Stop-and-go is the hardest and least uh, uh, economical and effective way to practice. Because you're trying to come back from a dead stop every time, right? So you have all that beginning thing of starting to turn the wheel of the effort to find mindfulness and to keep it there. You're starting from zero every time. So it's very laborious, very laborious, on top of all the trouble that the mind can get into when it just wanders around and does its thing without any kind of adult supervision. So, so consider carefully then how you can sustain practice during the interim time here. And, you know, this is a creative choice that you make individually, how you might do this. But the basic considerations are keeping mindfulness going in a way that 
supports balance of mind, adds to whole system energy and willingness to practice. Right? So it can't be just an unpleasant chore where the mind is not going to want to do it, right? It's going to move into rebellion mode and just say, well, heck with it all. Right? So this is an interesting point in practice, right? Learning how to work with our mind's own uh, perceived limits and limitations, boundaries, and working with our own heart and mind's resistance at certain points where we just just don't want to do it. The inner two-year-old arises, right? No, I'm not gonna, no. So the, the Utejaniya book that I read yesterday is called Dhamma Everywhere. And the, the book as a whole explores this perspective that pra- practice and the learning that flows from it can happen outside of formal practice periods. In fact, it can happen anywhere. So the rest of the talk is going to be about pointing out to you particular places in the course of the day where you can, by using the mindfulness that you've developed in your sitting and walking formal practices, extend awareness into other areas where maybe right now the mind tends to go offline and out to wander and get itself into situations. So this whole process of learning to see the Dharma and things other than formal practice is just another aspect of Dhamma Vikaya, the investigation of states, which is the quality of investigation that's actually completely portable. It's not relying on being in a formal retreat structure. So not only can you do this here in practice during your uh, open time, but you can do it at home as well. So this would be a good place to develop some skill in finding those kinds of practice opportunities. So let's, let's start with the beginning of the day. Okay, the waking up. The waking up in the morning. So when you wake up in the morning, some of the things that you could notice would be, okay, what's the mood? Now this is a particular mind state. What's the mood on hearing the alarm or... Is it like, oh, or is it, oh, I'm so happy to be awake. (laughs) Some people's minds are like that. Mine has never been like that. (laughs) I've always been kind of a a little crabby in the morning. Somebody said to me once, oh, you know, I just leave you alone in the morning. You know, I, I realize it takes like, at least an hour and a cup of coffee for your soul to enter your body. <laughs> that might be a slight exaggeration, but... Okay, so I, I kind of know that, notice that about myself in the morning, right? Like the, the, mood is ki- the mood is kind of dull. It might be a little uh, crabby, but not always. This is all about real-time knowing, right? The body senses are not good, right? There's kind of like a not really embodied kind of stumbly 
thing, you know, <laughs> with, with the first walking and things. Not very sharp. So how, how is that for you in the morning when you wake up? So there may be a generic pattern, but, you know, you, you could notice that in the morning, just what's going on there. So this is not like a right or wrong kind of thing. Because we're talking about the cultivation of mindfulness, right? So it's not better to hop up all, ha- all happy and bright and completely alert. It's just the way that it is, right? It's not a bad thing to be a little bit grumpy and kind of dull and all the rest of it. The question of mindfulness practice is, how is it? What is it and how is it? What is it and how is it? What is the mind like? How is the mind right now? You know, what's, what's the energy level in the morning? You know, for me, I would say often it's kind of it's low. It takes it a while to kind of wind up and get going. So when you head to the bathroom, you know, are you embodied yet? Are you in the body or, or are you like the walking, you know, a walking ghost that the other people should like <coughs> move around? Or are you one of those people who are like moving around the people who are the, walk, the stumbling ghosts? So when you, you push the door open, do you feel your hand on it? Right? You feel that touching sensation. So when, when you're getting dressed, when you're making your bed, when you're brushing your teeth, do you feel the sensations of doing that? The whole teeth brushing ritual is really interesting. In fact, it's a really good place of daily practice and your dentist will love you. Because there's a lot going on there, a lot of fine motor things going on, a lot of sensitivity inside the mouth as well. So it is the mind, is it attention with the body? Or is attention elsewhere? And if attention is elsewhere, where is it? Is it still like in semi-sleep? Or is it like in thoughts, various kinds of thoughts? Is it in emotions? Is it like tipping forward into the day? Just like, where is it? So again, this is not like a right or wrong. This is just, just a noticing. So then you... That's the whole getting up in the morning, getting yourself presentable. Okay, so then there's going to the med hall. Heading to the med hall for the first set. So what is present in the mind as you head down for the morning set? The first set of the day. You know, is it happiness? Is it sleepiness? Is it interest? Is it resistance? Is it like, oh, another day of this? Is it like, oh, practice? Oh, I feel so refreshed. I mean, just what, what's going on there? What's the ambient mood for you? And this will change, of course, from day to day. These are living things, right? The point of mindfulness is not to stereotype our experience. It's actually to come into connection with it in a living way and to see what's happening as it arises and expresses and passes away as it unfolds for us moment to moment. So do you connect with body sensations or something else as you're walking down the hall? So when you get to the hall, as you become aware of other yogis, what, what's the reaction there? When you're, now you're 
leaving from your own room, you're coming into this place where this is like the two big uh, collection points for the, the Sangha here. The meditation hall and the dining hall. This is, this is our, our social <laughs> environment here. If you can think of having a social environment where you don't talk to, write notes to, or look at each other. <laughs> so this is Dharma society here. But it is a society of a, of a type. Because, so when you notice other people around, you know, what's the, what's the reaction? Do you want them to go away? You know, do you like worry, worry about them? Do you get a, you know, a jolt of competitive energy about who got down here earliest? Um, do you notice some people more than you notice others? You know, do you want to look around to see if some person in particular is here? Either a positive or a negative uh, with that, right? Is there aversion or craving? Is there goodwill and compassion? Is there a sense of belonging or is there a sense of being isolated? Oh, like I'm a one-off, I don't really belong here. I'm not really part of this. They're all like, whatever, you know, the imagination is. They're all like this and I'm like that. And, and what's the Vedana of those kinds of states as, the, as they arise? The feeling tone, you know, pleasant, unpleasant, more upeka or neutralish Vedana. So again, you know, this isn't like, there's not a right or wrong to anything. This is all about, is the, is the mind knowing these things as they're happening? You know, because if you remember to just attend, it doesn't take that much to really know what's happening if the mind is present with some mindfulness to it. You're not trying to make anything happen, to manufacture anything. You're just noticing. How is it? What is it and how is it? So then you go to breakfast or other meals. So how many of you have done the raisin meditation? Raise your hand if you've done the raisin meditation. Oh, this is a papacy of raisin meditators in this group. <laughs> okay. And if, you, if you've done mostly short retreats, or even if you've done long retreats, it's not often uh, always offered, but... On some retreats, and particularly I've seen this at the long retreats at IMS, at a certain point in the first couple of weeks, they'll announce in the morning that um, at 11.30 today before lunch, make sure you come to the sitting, that sitting, because we're going to be doing uh, an eating meditation. We're going to give you eating meditation instructions. And so somebody will come in with a tray that's got these plastic cups with raisins in them, and they'll pass them around the room and have everybody take one or two. In the old days, you'd just like reach in there and grab a couple, but now we're all sanitary, you know, so they have a, have a spoon that you're supposed to use to dole out one or two. And then the first instructions are, Okay, eating is a very important thing that we humans do at, at a regular or semi-regular intervals. This is a, how we, a really interesting thing where we actually take uh, part of, 
of um, things that are external to us and we, you know, put them in the chute and then we grind them up and then they kind of like go in there and then they become us. But we're mostly unconscious about it, completely unconscious about this process of eating. It's actually one, at least initially, one of the hardest places to actually sustain mindfulness. So they'll say, okay, now first, okay, look at it. So they're, they're, they're pointing to, you want to have, you can use seeing with food first to help establish mindfulness. They're seeing, seeing. And then when you, uh, the uh, intention or the impulse arises, you can, you know, slowly move your hand up and, you know, open up, open up the jaws of life, you know, put it in there. And then, you know, just feel it there for a minute. Feel it in the mouth, feel it on, on the tongue. And then when you're ready, you know, begin to chew and experience what that is, you know, the physical sensations of chewing. And then what happens when the teeth start to grind up the raisin, right? Like the taste and how it kind of with raisinness. And then what happens as you continue to chew, right? What happens with the flavor and the texture? How it changes. And then the whole process of, you know, swallowing, you know, all the physical sensations of that. So you don't want to get overly micro, right? <laughs> you could like give yourself a problem. But so this is like uh, coaching on what's involved in being mindful of eating. So with the meals that you have here, there are tons of opportunities in a very easeful, natural way to strengthen mindfulness and explore this process without getting tight or contracted around it. So consider some of the first things, right? There's the standing waiting for the meal. The standing waiting for the meal ritual, right? Like the physical sensations of standing. You're usually, when you're standing, you're usually standing there with a group. Right? You're lined up. So that sense, okay, it's group, standing, sensations of standing. And then smelling. Okay, this is one of our least practiced with senses, right? But it's one of the six sense doors. And actually a surprisingly powerful place for primal energy and reactions, smell, right? It's, it's wired right in, in, uh, into certain centers in the brain that are quite powerful. But how often do you actually notice that you're smelling? That that sense door, at least for now, is like the primary thing that's going on. So you're standing there, for instance, before lunch. Right? It's happening. There's something going on there. Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is the mind perceiving, oh, that, that smells like potatoes, or that smells kind of uh, like curry, or, 
right? Is perception active there? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neutral? So there are the sensations of hunger or not hunger in the body, right? So there's the body sensations of hunger or not hunger. And then there are the mental experiences of wanting or not wanting, right? And it's interesting because sometimes those don't exactly line up. Have you noticed that? Sometimes you can be hungry, but like the mind doesn't really want it, or sometimes the mind wants it, but you're not really hungry. Or sometimes you're hungry and the mind wants it, or sometimes, right? It's like there's all different kinds of combinations possible there. And they can condition each other, right? So there are preferences in regard to food, right? Does your heart skip a beat when you notice there's eggs for breakfast or bagels? Hope they get bagels. They get bagels once in a while? Okay. (laughs) Because, you know, when you want a bagel, it's nice when you get a bagel, right? But if you're gluten-free, then, you know, you might be going, oh, I don't get to have it, right? All kinds of things. All kinds of things can be come up with eating. Then there's the whole process going through the line, you know, the physical sensations of picking up your tools, the bowl, the waiting. Uh, that can go on just waiting in the food line, right? That, oh, Oh, I don't want that. I want that. Or oh, why did they do do that again? Or I left them that note and I don't see that, you know, reflected on the table. Or you, know, you get in line behind somebody. You know what a fruit surgeon is? <laughs> okay. 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 A fruit surgeon is somebody who likes fruit, and they're very precise about how they like it cut. Right. So they got the knife at the end of the table and they're very precise about, you know, how they're sectioning things and like the size of everything. That's, so that's, that's a Dharma term, fruit surgeon. <laughs> so you may be a fruit surgeon. So, you know, you see all different things, you know, like, oh, you know, plop, 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 plop. And then there's some people that are like, over the, the condiments for the salad, you know, kind of like, oh, should I, I don't know, you know, that's like <laughs> gas in the afternoon, you know, it's like, oh, no, but I need some protein, let me take some of that cheese, you know, it's like, so there's like a whole world, a whole world that can be noticed in eating. In addition to everything relating to the raisin meditation, you know, the chewing, the tasting, the different layers of texture, the swallowing, the knowing when you've had enough, when you feel full. And is the feeling full different or the same as um, wanting to continue to eat? And, you know, at different times we all see that this, is, this can be different, right? Sometimes we may not want to eat anymore, but the body still says it's hungry. Sometimes the body may say it's full, but the mind still wants to eat. Different versions. 
And then, of course, you've got the waiting in line to scrape and do the preliminary washing of your dishes and the sensations of doing all that, right? So, three meals a day, plus snacks, plus tea making, some of the same principles are are there. So, you know, this doesn't take like a lot of... uh, really focused, tight, samadhi kind of concentration to be present with this, but incline the mind to just easily know and notice what's going on here. It's easy. You're doing it anyway. The only reason you wouldn't know and notice these things is if the mind is checked out and is off, you know, doing something something else that it's manufactured uh, from... Uh, the thinking door. So another place that you can really look and practice is the yogi job. So the yogi job is really the mother load of off formal practice practice. Now you may have heard of the yogi job as being referred to as work meditation. Anybody heard that expression? Did they use that here, work meditation? Do you believe that? Do you believe that that's work meditation or you think that's just trying to make you feel better about cleaning the toilet? So, So if it's accompanied by mindfulness, it can actually be a very valuable place of practice. And many people actually have significant deep openings in the course of doing their yogi jobs. And they just kind of arise out of the blue. They don't arise out of, you know, trying to uh, strive to find the breath. They don't arise out of, you know, really wanting to see something. They don't arise out of any of that. They, They just arise out of the mind attending and paying attention to what it's doing as it's doing it in real time. So often one of the things that, that comes up in, in the yogi jobs is that you see your dominant conditioning. So there's some personal psychological insight that can be present and can be known in this kind of way. So, so let's start with the job that you're actually doing. So do you experience that job, generally speaking, as more pleasant unpleasant or uh, neutral feeling tone. So when you think about doing your yogi job and when you're actually doing it, is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And is that pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality as you're doing it, is that a mental reaction or is that physical? In other words, the Vedna arises in, in relationship to what immediate experience when you're doing your yogi job? So I'll, I'll give you an example of mine. So I, I was here most recently on a retreat and you know, staying in the dorm was a long retreat. Staying in the dorm was a long, strict retreat (laughs) where we got up very early (laughs) 
And we practiced it until really late. And we had really long sittings. It was a really strict retreat. So if, if you have ever wondered what yogi jobs the teachers get, well, I got the bathroom corridor, right? The upstairs bathroom corridor, that was my job. So the laundry room, the hallway, the showers, the toilets, the sinks. So my initial reaction to this was, ooh, toilets, <laughs> toilets. Because my sense door of the nose <laughs> is quite sensitive. It's like, oh, toilets, man. Oh, geez, toilets. It's like, and it was a mental reaction. But, you know, I was willing to do it because, you know, that's all part of the practice, right? You take what you get to the extent you can uh, work with it in a practical sense. You take what you get, you don't pick and choose, and you just work with it, right? You work with what's happening, you work with your mind. So one of the things that I started to notice as I was doing my yogi job was, okay, laundry room, okay, laundry room, neutral to pleasant. Corridor, neutral to pleasant. Showers, <laughs> showers, <laughs> okay. Floors, a uh, little unpleasant. Top of the shower, neutral. Shower drain, hair, <laughs> nasty, <laughs> unpleasant, unpleasant, not liking. Judgment arises in the mind. They tell people to clean out the drains after they take a shower. It's this, this same person with like the long dark hair. It's like every day, you can't tell me she doesn't know that she's leaving all this hair in the shower. Right? So it's just like watching the mind do this, right? It's like, why, 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 why is she doing that? You know, seeing, seeing the dukkha in it, right? All coming, it was coming out of two things. Now there's nothing like intrinsically... to be aversive to and just seeing like hair, right? I mean, it's not inherent in hair, I would say, most of the time. But it was just like the, the combination of uh, perceptions were unpleasant and they led to the arising of this state of resistance to it. And then the toilet, the bathroom, sinks, okay, no problem. Mirrors, no problem. Floor, no problem. Toilets, uh, toilets, okay. Not so nice, unpleasant. Smell, unpleasant. But it was really interesting to see over the, the period of doing this job, and I did this for about three and a half months, doing this job, that the mind really started to shift, right? Like the levels of unpleasantness started to really diminish until it actually became more like a, a neutral kind of experience. So, you know, there might be like a strong first reaction at seeing a bunch of hair in the bottom of the shower. I'm like, ugh. But it really passed through quickly. So there was a lot less aversion, both arising 
and flowering and staying. It became neutral. And then the mind actually started to get into it. Right? It got into cleaning the bathrooms and the showers and all the rest of it. And I started to have this, <laughs> this thought run through my mind, and it was a, long, uh, a real bodhisattva thought, and it was, everybody likes a clean potty chair. <laughs> right? Everybody likes a clean toilet. You know what that's like if you go into a, a bathroom like in a public place or something, you're expecting something to be really scuzzy, and instead it's like this spotless place, and you're like, oh, the bathroom is so clean. So then I started to hold it as like, okay, this is like my gift to the sangha. So they're getting clean potty chairs, right? So they've had a hard day doing practice. They go into the bathroom and it's all sparkly and clean and there's no loose toilet paper on the, on the floor and the, you know, the mirror is shiny and everything's picked up. Okay, this is my, yeah, this is good. This is meta. This is happiness at the thought of people enjoying using a clean shower. So, you know, even the initial reactions that you have can transform over time. If you see what the reactions are, you treat it as practice, you you notice what the mind states are, and you just engage in being present to them with mindfulness. Things can shift and things can move. So, you know, some of the things that you could ask yourself, well, you know, are you resistant to what you, you got assigned? Or, you know, here's another piece, you know, did you scheme like to get a certain kind of job because you like it? Oh, the last time I was here, I did da-da-da-da-da, and I'd like to get this kind of job. I don't know that any of you did this. I'm just putting that out there. Right? So you're like, I, I, you know, I want the one that's short, and it's like easy, and it's like, boom, I'm done by, you know, I've then I've got a half an hour, and I can... Right? Does the mind do that? So, when you apply the effort to do the job, how are you making an effort? Are you like over-efforting? Are you under-efforting? You know, do you do like the minimal that's required? Or maybe you might notice that you take emotional responsibility for stuff that isn't even your job, right? Like, I've got to do, you know, this over here because da-da-da-da-da and I'm going to, right? You have like boundary stuff come up in doing the job. Some of you that work together in the kitchen, you know, you can, there can be some very interesting fields of practice there, right? Like when you're working together in a group and this, this thing has to get done and then this next thing has to get done and you're all sort of working together to get something done. It can be really fertile. So what's the attitude of mind as you approach this? Is it relaxed? Uh, Is it tense? Is it hurried? Is it inattentive? Is it checked out? Um, Do you have the idea that this is outside of practice and, you know, you want to get through this so that then you can go (laughs) go practice? So an interesting thing uh, as part of the learning is all mind moments count equally in developing the heart and mind. All mind moments count equally. So any, any moment of presence is equal to a moment of presence doing formal practice. So I said earlier, some of our habitual mental tendencies can um, reveal themselves in yogi jobs as well. So 
the very first retreat, residential retreat, 10-day retreat I ever went on, was in this, this place that, you know, was kind of dumpy and run down, but they were trying to fix it up. So what they had us do right at the beginning of the retreat, and, and IMS used to do a lot of this, but still does some of it, but not as much. But at the beginning of the three-month retreat, there were often these like special jobs that they would get the whole yogi group to do to, you know, it could only happen once a year and, you know, kind of get the yogis warmed up and, you know, have a labor pool of 95 people or something to address it. But anyway, this retreat I was on, they decided they had these old bed frames uh, that were rusted and they wanted to repaint them. But so that what they wanted to do is have the retreatants take some steel wool and then use the steel wool on the rust spots so they can get rid of it so that then they could be repainted and, and used at the retreat center. And it was just really interesting, you know, because I got into it, you know, it's like, okay, rust, steel wool. And as I was doing this, I started to notice that some of the people I was working with, they were being kind of careless in the removal of the rust. <laughs> you know, like there were things that they were missing, like, you know, around those little spindles and things, you know, down at the bottom there. And they were just kind of like doing a light brush over and they were like not doing it properly. And I found myself like, you know, wanting to intervene in some kind of way, you know, wanting to like, go over and give them some guidance or perhaps point out to the, you know, the person who was supervising the task about, you know, the qu inferior quality of <laughs> rust removal that was taking place over here. And, and, and I, at the time I had a really responsible job that I was, you know, there to, uh, you know, I had a resp very responsible uh, job where I was actually a supervisor of people. And a certain point I had like this lightning bolt insight like, hey, you're not the boss and this isn't life and death like it is at work. <laughs> this is like rust, <laughs> right? This is rust on an old bedstead. I was like, what, what are you doing? What is your, what is, you know, what is your mind doing with this situation? It's like, it's getting all keyed up. It's like getting all amped up. I thought, oh, personality characteristic is being activated in this moment, right? I'm taking this sense of, like, the strong sense of responsibility. Uh, but that's not really this situation at all. This situation is like a completely different situation. This is just like a, you know, we can't afford to, to have a, you know, electric buffer. Let's just let them do this, <laughs> situation. And those kinds of patterns you, you'll see for yourself can come up in the course of retreat, in the course of doing yogi jobs. You know, you see like your usual or habitual overlay on things and how you approach them coming up in this practice environment. So I, I, I can remember once a friend uh, telling me this story about... Um, She was a person who grew up in a lower 
socioeconomic situation, right? As a member of a non-dominant social group. Let's just put it that way. And so she had the experience of getting a yogi job where she was supposed to mop the floor in this corridor. And then this was kind of like a circulation corridor where people would walk on this to get about the buildings. And she was supposed to mop, mop the floor and then she would put up these signs that say wet, kind of like do not caution, do not. And the idea was like, don't come in and walk on the floor when it's wet, right? Like go outside and go around or wait till later or something. And people would come and they would walk on her wet floor. And it was really a major learning for her because she would ha- have experienced the eruption of like these very strong states of anger, you know, feeling like invisible and dismissed and uh, taken advantage of and overlooked and not important and not considered and, you know, would see in her mind the arising of all these projections related to the people who were doing this. Like, oh, they think they're so that, all that, you know, they think they're like the superior group. Like, they're not, they don't even see me. They don't, right? Really interesting, really interesting arising of this complex uh, state of suffering, compound suffering with views and opinions and self uh, views and shoulds and oughts and personal <coughs> narrative and uh, you know awareness of social conditions and all of it was there out of somebody who is probably in a deluded state of mind like parading by walking on this floor and not even realizing that they were doing something that they shouldn't do. So she saw, you know, she saw in this attending to the yogi job, this touching a particular kind of primal suffering that was, uh, was hers and that was present in other kinds of environments, other kinds of circumstances as well. And it's arising in practice, in a practice setting, when mindfulness had been established and held within the container, really allowed her to work with that directly and to begin to see into it and begin the process of unpacking the dukkha related to it. So, you know, the arising of self-view is really common on retreat. Like this whole idea, I'm like this, I'm not like that. I'm as good as this one, I'm better than that one, I'm not as good as this one, right? And some of these uh, manifestations of what's called mana, this idea of there being a fixed self that is like a certain fixed way, and the way the mind tends to compare one uh, self to another, and its own self to other imagined selves and their experience, is a frequent Thing in being on retreat, right? So how many, you may have noticed times like, oh, that person's a really good practitioner. Or like, oh man, that one. Oh, I'm better than that one. Oh, I'm worse than that one. Oh, I'm as good as that one. You know, it's like, oh, that one thinks she's all that. Oh no, that guy, oh, that poor guy, you know, he needs support. I hope they're paying attention to him. You know, it's like all these things like we manufacture in our, our 
our minds in the silence and the lack of contact. Well, what's coming up with these views and opinions? Our own conditioning. Our own conditioning is taking uh, very small uh, perceptions or bits of uh, information is creating this whole elaborated story of what we think is going on. And one of the most fascinating things about the end of long retreats in particular, when silence is broken and you actually get to talk to people, you actually meet the people that you've got ideas about, is it generally doesn't line up very well. <laughs> Those of you who have done long retreats have probably noticed that. Like how much of it is actually projection? Lots. Lots. And that's a big learning in and of itself, right? Because we start to realize, okay, the mind manufactures these views and opinions and ideas and concepts and comparisons and all the rest of it out of very thin, thin cloth. And most of the time we don't see it happening, but we suffer a lot because of it. So the yogi job, lots to see there. So let's talk about the midday break, the midday break. This would be like after you have your midday meal, and if you've got a yogi job after that. So what do you notice about the body after the midday meal? You know, what does it want? What does the body want? Does it want... uh, And what is present in the mind stream? What's present there for you when you decide whether you're going to rest or walk or go back to formal practice or take a shower or do other activities? So what's the intention or motivation at those choice points? Or does the choice just seemingly make it self, right? Do you just like find yourself doing something rather than something else? Or is there a process of consideration there? So here again, there's not like a right or wrong answer to this. It's more just an encouraging uh, to notice. And then lastly, the point of the container and keeping the container. So, you know, when we come in, there is a a set of explicit commitments that we make and coming here and then we have the the taking of the refuges and precepts and all the rest of that. So uh, things around keeping the container are actually interesting to look at. So When you become, for instance, aware of wanting to do something at variance with the practice agreement here, you know, like, let's say, like leaving a note for another yogi or, you know, getting on your cell phone or something. um, What's going on then? When that wanting arises, you know, what what is the experience from which that uh, desire that craving arises. What What is the state right there? So, you know, is, is it lonely? Is it 
frustrated? Is it bored? Is it sad? Is it... Or what compound of those things is actually present? Is there like a desire to escape? Is there, you know, a wanting to soothe? Is there, you know, feeling like things are too pressurized that you got to find, you know, some relief from that? Uh, You know, is it wanting relaxation? You know, what is there? What is the, what's present there? So, you know, you could check out what the hindrances are or might be, you know, what are the mind states? What are the states that are wholesome that might be there? What are the states that are unwholesome that might be there? Wanting to take care of yourself is a wholesome, a wholesome thing, right? What are the thoughts that accompany the impulse? What are the desires that are there? So it was a good thing uh, for me in my own practice when I realized at a certain point that when this kind of thing came up on retreat, instead of just going, oh yeah, I'll, I'll go with it, or yeah, that'd be good, because then if I do that, then it'll kind of like bring down and I'll... Was I actually started to investigate and interrogate that particular impulse to turn the practice mind towards the arising of that thing too. So it's, it's not that, um, so this is all about skillfulness, right? So it doesn't mean that we need to practice in a way that's like pedal to the metal, you know, tight and, you know, striving in a, uh, a useless and uh, tension creating kind of way. So the kind of effort that's being called for to actually sustain mindfulness through all these uh, comings and goings in practice is really more about integrity of effort, right? It's integrity of effort. It's not about any particular rule. It's about integrity of intention and then skillfulness in finding the appropriate practice approach right then and how do you know what the appropriate practice uh, approach is right then you take the feedback from your own heart and mind and how do you know the feedback from your own heart and mind you know it by being mindful yeah if if you're plugged in you'll know okay i'm getting like way tight there i'm getting like out there i'm just like trying way too hard what I need to do now, I just need to go like for a regular walk, right? I don't need to go for a walk where I'm noting. I don't need to go for a walk where I'm trying to feel every footstep. I just need to like go for a regular walk. I need to invite the body to relax. I need to find some comfort now. This is what I need. Or the mind might go, okay, this is what's going on. I don't want to do this. I feel resistance. I feel resistance. I don't want to do it. Well, I don't want to do it. I'm going to do it. (laughs) I don't want to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. 
I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I'm going to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. We're doing it, right? <laughs> so it's finding, finding the way, right? <laughs> Making your best guess about what's needed right then and just, you know, proceeding with some willingness to run the experiment, to find for your own, for yourself. And just keep keeping engaging as, as best you can, right? There's, there's not, no one right practice rule for everybody. The, every moment is different. Every mind is different. The causes and conditions, the mental factors are different and changing all the time. So this is all part of your own investigation of working with what's present there and seeing for, your, for yourself, okay, what would it be like to sustain mindfulness in this particular circumstance? That's outside of uh, the formal sitting and walking. You know, what would that look like? What, what could I notice now? Well, the first thing you could notice is the wholesome intention of wanting to, to find a way to be present with what's happening, right? Like, okay, the mind is willing, it's kind of engaged. It's curious. Right? There's some dedication there. So this is all um, for your own benefit and, and own learning. And, you know, if you persist with this, this can turn into uh, something that's joyful and onward leading even, uh, though there may be periods where there's struggle or even um, a lot of difficulty. Develop trust in the practice path and trust in yourself as somebody who can learn how to work with things. Work with the wild cards that arise in practice and find happiness and joy in learning to encourage the mind to trust its own ability to work with whatever arises. So this is the strengthening of faith, which is uh, such an important resource in this path. So may we remember to uh, work with kindness and realism dedicated to the path that we've chosen and just showing up. So let's chant the sharing of Blessings together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.